Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Now, Janet, Vaskatab, what are you doing? I kind of hear music. Get out of my kitchen, Ludwig. Out! What are you all cheesed off about? You know what? You're in here trying to steal another one of my musical ideas. History will never know the name Janet Beethoven because you've been ripping me off for years, you fat, half-deaf, syphilitic... I never... Eight times already. How about ba 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 Yeah, that was my idea. You're... Oh! Hey, 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 Barshen, Kushelbar, come here. Let's have a little Moonlight Sonata. Don't touch me. You know what you could do? Next time you're on Good Morning Vienna, you can mention, you know, my wife Janet, she comes up with a lot of my famous melodies. Then I'm going to look like a gabagool instead of a great master. You want to master something? Here, master the f- garbage. It's pickup day, not that a genius like you would know. Whatever you say, Schnuckelchen. Hey, before I take out the trash, how did that go again? Yeah, 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 yeah. Out! Ich habe den Nasvalvanderlatten music. This is what I have to deal with. In 200 years, somebody's going to say, there aren't any good symphonies by women composers, and people ask why I'm acting crazy. I suppose in 200 years, there's going to be some kind of radio show to talk about this. And now you want to know where all his brilliant ideas come from? Talk to his sister, Cynthia McEnroe Frankenfeld. She lives in Scottsdale. Here's Colin McEnroe. That, of course, is from, well, I don't know about of course, but that is from Bach's uh, unaccompanied cello suites. And, of course, one reason I don't know whether to say of course or not is there actually is some question now as to whether J.S. Bach wrote those uh, cello suites and some of the other work attributed to him all by himself or whether he was, in fact, assisted and maybe significantly assisted by his wife, Anna Magdalena. And this has turned into a, a new documentary. Uh, written by Mrs. Bach. We have two of these sort of featured players in that documentary with us. Sally Beamish is a British composer. Heidi Harrelson is an expert in document forensics based in Arizona. And in fact, the arguments about this are both musical in nature and forensic in nature. So we have covered the waterfront, as it were. Sally Beamish, I'm going to begin with you. First of all, maybe you can just put this uh, case into a nutshell. What is being claimed in the documentary written by Mrs. Bach? It's known, of course, that Anna Magdalena was one of Bach's copyists, and the manuscript of the six cello suites is in her hand. The main source of those works is in her hand, and there's no original draft by J.S. Bach. What has come to light is that it's absolutely possible that Anna Magdalena, well, we know she was a musician, but that she was also a composer, and that 
it's equally possible that she she may have had a creative hand in these pieces and maybe even composed all or some of them herself. I want to come back back to that in a second, but there's a musical argument, uh, Sally Beamish, that's made here, uh, was originally made by, by Martin Jarvis, a Welsh-born conductor and musician and professor of music at Charles Darwin University in Australia, who kind of got this whole ball rolling here. And part of his argument is there are parts of these compositions that don't seem like Bach, they don't silently seem like J.S. Bach. Can you help me understand what is meant by that? Well, the thing that stands out most, I think, is the regularity of the movements. I mean, each of the six suites has exactly the same pattern of movements. And that's very unusual for Bach. If you look at the sonatas, the violin, solo violin sonatas and partitas, they follow a certain format, but then he'll suddenly throw in a chaconne that lasts for 10 minutes or, you know, a sort of wild card. And this doesn't happen at all with the cello suites. They're very, very regular. It's almost as if somebody was trying to stick to a format. I'm going to come back to the musical part of this, but let's go to the forensic part of it. Heidi Harrelson, this is where you come in. You were asked to look at these documents, at these manuscripts. And what is it that you found? What made you think there might be a persuasive case on behalf of the uh, authorship or at least contributions by Anna Magdalena Bach? I looked at more than the cello suites, but when we're examining documents for identification, we're looking for identifying characteristics that can be found in one's handwriting, but it can also be found in music calligraphy as well. And once we'd established identifying patterns in J.S. Bach's music calligraphy versus Anna Magdalena's, then we could apply that to, say, various manuscripts that may either be questioned or written in parts by either Mr. or Mrs. Bach. And what we were finding is that, as Sally just mentioned, there is no original manuscript written by J.S. Bach in the cello suite. What we have is one written by, it's in Anna Magdalena's hand, not in J.S. Bach's hand. And we were finding her music calligraphy in places in original manuscripts that one would think that J.S. Bach's writing should really be in its place instead. In many ways, this is an interesting case because it's not so much that somebody is trying to mimic or copy or imitate somebody else's handwriting. They have very distinctive hands, and it really was not that difficult to separate them out. So, like I said, you know, we were able to find her writing in many places where I think, as Martin said, they really, it really should not exist. The counter-argument is that she was functioning as kind of a scribe, as a copyist. It says, uh, as I'm sure you know, on the title page, Composé par J.S. Bach, and then Echit by his wife, Anna Magdalena Bach. Why wouldn't that be an argument for the fact that he wrote it and then she wrote it down? Well, the word Composé in those days meant to put together. So it was a compilation of works, whereas the word Echit did mean to write, and it was used in the same way as we use it now. I mean, she wrote it. It doesn't mean she copied it. It doesn't mean she wrote it out. It means she wrote it. But even so, I, I mean, for me, the whole thing is more about the role of women in those days, which has been completely obliterated, and the fact that the Bach family would have operated as a kind of workshop, just in the same way as the Stradivarius workshop operated. We know that some of the great violin makers, their wives made parts of the violins, but they had absolutely no credit at all for that. And it wasn't regarded as something that needed credit. Art, creativity was regarded as coming from God. So 
the hand that held the pen was maybe incidental, so it wasn't as if there was a cover-up going on. It was just that Bach as Kapellmeister would have been engaging his entire family to help with the daily work that needed to be done, and one of those tasks was composition. I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but um, if that were the case, I mean, for example, we know something about Fanny Mendelssohn. You know, we know something about Anna Mahler. We, we know there's a little bit more of a record and a little bit more, I think, contemporaneous information to make it clear that they were people who composed music. But do we have anything like that for, uh, for Anna Magdalena Bach? Is there any sort of contemporary account that would kind of reinforce the notion that she wrote music and maybe wrote music at this level? Well, Heidi, you, you've been looking into the, what, what exists from, from the day books and the letters, and there's very, very little. One theory is that most of what there was was destroyed, maybe deliberately or maybe just, I mean, paperwork gets thrown out, doesn't it? There's very, very little record of the daily life of the Bachs, which is, is quite unusual, actually, even from as early as that. They're usually day books that survive. We know that the, fam- that the portrait that he commissioned of her has not survived, and that's also very unusual. So whether it was a deliberate cover-up, I don't know. But I think, in general, the role of women has been covered up, intentionally or not, just because women's work has never been valued as highly, and the woman was the property of her husband. Therefore, everything that she achieved was his property as well. So, Heidi Harrelson, maybe you want to comment on that, too. You, you've gone into uh, the other records that were available, the kinds of things that, that forensic historians look at. Would you agree? I mean, it sounds like Sally Beamish is saying it's almost the absence, the dog that didn't bark, that kind of makes your ears prick up. Was that well, your take on it, too? Yeah, go ahead. I don't really see this so much as an intentional cover-up, as maybe we've just been making assumptions about these manuscripts for hundreds of years, and these assumptions were wrong. Actually, Anna Magdalena's writing is all over these manuscripts. You know, it's right in front of our faces. It says that she wrote the cello suites. It's right in front of our face, and we choose to ignore it. So I, I think part of this problem is that we have an assumption that Bach wrote all of these things without really looking at the face of these documents and critically examining them and saying, wait, whose writing is really here? Who really did compose this? not to say to take away Bach's genius. It's more like he had a collection of people that were assisting him, and one of those people was his wife. So I actually think the evidence is right in front of our face. It's not really being covered up. It's not hidden. It's right there. So, Sally, let me come back to this. It seems to me that there's sort of two um, arguments being made here, and they may be uh, made in sort of different time periods. It seems like at the time period we're talking about, the the time of the box, the time when they, they were in-house together. And, it, you know, you're, you're very persuasive. I have to say I went into this a little bit skeptical. But when you were sort of talking about the, almost the workshop, the notion that there's music in the house all the time, there's two musical people, they're clearly talking back and forth about the music, it kind of makes sense that they would be, that she would be making contributions and sort of saying, well, no, not, not so much like that. How about like that? But that also, it also sounds like, given everything that you say about the notion of authorship at the time, that it came from God and people weren't so concerned about who did what, that there wouldn't be that much of a need for a cover-up. When would the cover-up have happened? In other words, when did somebody get interested in portraying men's contributions to the exclusion of women? I think it goes right back through society, through religion, 
that men were regarded as the head of the household, that men were the key figures in every walk of life. And that is why women's history is so hidden, because it wasn't recorded in the same way. So um, for me, the exciting thing is that when I first heard this theory, I reacted with shock and disbelief. And then I thought, well, why am I so so shocked? You know, I'm a full-time professional composer myself, and yet I think that women can't do it. And this is what gets handed down to us, that to be a woman and to be creative, even now, is somehow harder. It's harder to have the confidence because we don't have the role models. We don't really deep down believe that it's something we can do. And I had never recognized that in myself before. So that for me, that's been the exciting thing. It's actually recognizing that lack of confidence in myself. Let's imagine that for a moment that we get a little bit more confirmation than we have right now. Although, I mean, maybe maybe we won't. Maybe either way. I'm, I'm going to ask both of you this question, but I'll, I'll start with you, um, Heidi Harrelson. What would strike you as justice? I mean, should some of these works, and we are talking about the unaccompanied cello suites, the beginning and ending aria from the Goldberg variation, a portion of the well-tempered clavier. I don't know if there's uh, other stuff as well. Should those works say composed by J.S. and A.M. Bach? Or, I mean, what, what would be a just and fair outcome here? Judging by today's standards, I think it would be fair to have her name alongside his or in, in the situation of the cello suite, if she wrote most or all of it, then she, she should be recognized as the author. But, you know, from a society perspective, what is correct today may not have been correct yesterday. So back in her time period, you know, the way she was raised, she probably had no problem with her husband's name being on things instead of her own name. She probably accepted that, well, that's just the normal course of business. That's what we do. So back then, maybe that was the correct thing for their society. So it's not like, I don't really view Bach as being some bad person doing a cover-up. It's just the way things were done back then. But we're looking at things differently now, and I, we want to know. I mean, I find it personally very interesting that, that she is as involved as, at the level that she is, and I think other people should know that too because, like Sally said, it helps us to shift the paradigm that women are capable of doing these things, that women can shine in a very public position like being a composer. I think our society does need to know these things now. Sally Beamish, I'll just sort of reword the question for you a little bit. I mean, obviously, you've got a long, long uh, uphill climb to roll this rock uh, to the top, right? I mean, and I think a lot of people have the same instinctual reaction that you did. Oh, no, she didn't. That that can't be right. So first of all, what's, what's your goal here? Is it, in fact, your goal to see Anna Magdalena Bach get some kind of recognition uh, that somebody going to a concert uh, five, ten years from now will look down at the program and see her name on the program alongside her husband's or maybe in the case of the cello suites replacing her husband's name? I think my goal would be, because I don't think realistically we're ever really going to know the answer, but I think my goal would be that women are recognized as being creators equally with men so that we get rid of this idea of the great master, the sole male composer, because I don't think 
he actually existed. I think there were very often teams going on. I mean, the, the sole creator was much more later in, in the Romantic era that you got that happening. But before that, you did get people working together. And, I mean, look at modern film music composers. There's always a team working, and actually there are composers composing alongside the named film composer because there simply isn't time, you know, with, with everything being demanded yesterday, you know, for a film score. You have to have people working alongside you. But the problem is with the way music has been recorded historically is that the women have just simply disappeared, and that leaves the impression that women can't do it. Well, our whole show today is about that very question. I want to thank uh, both of you very much for being part of it. Sally Beamish, a British composer. Heidi Harrelson, an expert in document forensics based in Arizona. Uh, They are both part of the documentary written by Mrs. Bach. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. In studio with us uh, is our music guru, Steve Metcalf. Uh, He has many things, including the curator of the Richard B. Garmany Chamber Music Series at the Hard School, but most importantly to us, uh, he now writes the weekly Metcalf on music blog for WNPR.org. And uh, also with me in studio is Paula Mathewson, uh, composer and assistant professor of music at Wesleyan University. And and also joining us uh, by phone, uh, and let me actually put her up on the board here, is Carolyn Kwan, who is the, of course, conductor uh, and music director of the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. Um, Paula, I am going to start with you as a, as a composer. Um, one of the pieces that we read getting ready for the show was on New Music Box. It was uh, by Amy Beth Kirsten, I think, and it was called The Woman Composer is Dead. Fun- made the basic argument, we don't really need to, in 2014, have this conversation or use that term, woman composer. Composers are composers. It doesn't really make any difference. On the other hand... As I was also doing some reading for the show, I, I saw this study done by Ricky O'Bannon, who's the writer-in-residence for the Baltimore Symphony. He looked at 21 the major American symphonies. He looked at their programming for this season, the 2014-15 season. Uh, he looked at all of the music that was being performed by these symphony orchestras. 1.8% of that music was by women composers. When you refocused it just on living composers, 14.8% of that music was by women composers. So take both of those things and kind of bat them around a little bit. I mean, is in fact the battle won? Is in fact the conversation that we, were, we, we hear about, about women of the past, over now? 
Uh, the battle's, I guess, certainly not done. I mean, the question with this sort of that uh, sort of exploded on new music box was one that I think is sort of symptomatic of the fact that that the question and that the argument is in some ways evolving. So we, it would be nice to say that the woman composer is dead in this way, but really, when you look at programming statistics, uh, that tends not to be the case. And the truth is that for a lot of the people who wrote in and their comments on that. They were telling these experiences, which were certainly ones that I had had myself and that are shared by a number of my friends and colleagues as well. And, you know, it was interesting listening to the Sally Beamish piece, too, because there's this question in some ways about having work being evaluated um, and in a way that sort of acknowledges the collaborative efforts of people and also that women's work is valued. And so the argument in some ways has evolved productively because I don't think people necessarily think anymore in their deep gut, oh, women can't compose but then what is happening in this sort of situation of self-organization where you do have um, concerts, multiple concerts, where women aren't featured at all? And so there is something there that still needs to be um, addressed. And um, myself, being an advocate for diversity in concert programming, always wants uh, you know, the more the merrier, personally. You know, Steve, Steve Metcalf, among the people who thought that, that women can't compose in the past, were women composers. Uh, Clara Schumann wrote in her diary, I once thought that I possessed creative talent, but I've given up this idea. A woman must not desire to compose. Not one has been able to do it. Why should I expect to? Uh, it would be arrogance, though, indeed. My father uh, led me into it in, in earlier days. There was sort of like, I mean, it seems insane now to say something like that out loud, but there was actually this notion that this was not something that women did. Well, and that's true. And then there was also this kind of uh, odd husbandly presence in the case of Clara Schumann and later with Alma Mahler. Uh, and as we just heard with Anna Magdalena Bach, you know, I, when I was listening to the segment just a moment ago on the Bach thing, I, I, I had a strange thought, which is that this whole question of sort of exclusive attribution of music to a given composer is not something confined to, say, the Baroque period or some period of time many hundreds of years ago. I, and I, believe it or not, I thought of the Duke Ellington, Billy Strayhorn example in which as I think everybody knows, in recent years, it has come to light that Billy Strayhorn uh, wasn't only Duke Ellington's assistant, but in fact was in fact the composer of, uh, or at least the co-composer of many of the tunes that had been formerly attributed to Duke all by himself. And so it has become, I think, the accepted practice to at least call these Ellington Strayhorn tunes, or in some case, in some cases, Strayhorn tunes. However, I'd like to pivot to and ask Carolyn if she's there. Carolyn, are you there? Hi, Carolyn. Yes, I'm here. It's always great to be on the show. Hi, how are you? Good. So, Carolyn, I'd like to ask, particularly in the light of the statistics that Colin just mentioned from the Baltimore Symphony, do you find, I mean, we, we all know that programming contemporary music for orchestras is a special challenge, and there's, you know, there's a certain resistance to new music that's perhaps been going on since the Rite of Spring and so on. Do you find that that somehow there's an additional issue associated with works by women? I mean, is there a is there an audience component to the to the whole question here that audiences are 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 somehow less receptive to to new works if they're by women composers? You know, I think actually from my perspective, I actually feel that women composers. I mean, I hate to use the word woman composer, but I really feel that things are actually much better than they used to be. I will actually be, I didn't hear the exact statistic. I would be curious whether the statistic is counting only on contemporary pieces or that percentage is, you know, of the entire 
season. I, I can tell you that. Yeah, I can tell you that. The, the, if you look at the entire season for 21 major symphony orchestras, it's 1.8 percent mm-hmm. women composers. Now, if you look at only living composers, the percentage of living composers, then it goes up to 14.8 percent. But Carolyn, that doesn't sound like a great percent. 14.8 percent. I mean, I assume women have 50 percent of the uh, songwriting ability or more uh, among living composers. Do we, do we know the percentage of um, conservatory students? How many? Because part of the question in my mind is, you know, how many women composers are out there compared to composers in general? So Actually, part of that... That might be an interesting question for Paula to respond to. I mean, you, you might have a better eye on conservatories and music education in general. I mean, how many women... What percentage of people who, are aspi- who aspire to the title composer right now are women? Well, there's... Um, it is this thing that uh, is kind of an enduring problem. It was certainly a problem when I was started school that I would always be one of the only women in the classroom, and it is something that I see now as a professor that the number of women uh, in the classroom is still tends to be much, uh, much smaller than those of their male colleagues. And in the case, too, a lot of times when I do application sort of reviews and things like that for various panels, there's always that question of trying to keep track of how many women are actually applying. And there still tends to be um, a disparity there. And so there's been some interesting efforts to really try and combat that by some very useful organizations like the IAWM, the International Alliance for Women in Music, as well as some really great and inspiring initiatives by um, people like Suzanne Thorpe and Bonnie Jorns, who started this group called Techne, to start trying to like really address um, sort of a woman at younger ages and um, get them working with technology, music technology, and do uh, creative things like field recording as a way to sort of start really just engaging with sound and creating and making music um, at an earlier age and realize what's possible and what resources are there for them. Carolyn, I just want to go back to Steve's question and maybe rephrase it a different way, because obviously as we look at um, modern composers, whether we're talking about Paula Mathewson or uh, Jennifer Higdon or, or whoever, there are some uh, there are great ones, and there are great ones who would be appealing to put on a, a program that had new music on it. Uh, I, but I guess my question is, as you're programming a symphony orchestra, you do have to think a little bit about ticket sales, you, you have, and, and I assume Felix sells better than Fanny, and that Gustav sells better than Alma, and that probably even Robert uh, sells better than Clara. Uh, so Actually, probably not. Actually, okay. I mean, I think when it comes to programming, you know, you have Beethoven sells better than non-Beethoven. Every, <laughs> <laughs> or Mozart sells better than, you know, Stravinsky. But not Janet um, Beethoven. So, yeah, I don't think, you know, if Mozart's name was Fanny, it will make any difference. But, I mean, I think when it comes... I actually think when it comes to composition, there's actually an advantage in, compared to performer or conductor or, you know, other um, profession in the sense that when you listen to music, you're not actually, or at least from my perspective, you're not actually, I'm not thinking whether the person's male or female, as opposed to when you see someone performing, you can actually see them as male or female. So in that sense, when I'm listening to a piece of music, I think Gershwin said this, or Stravinsky, there's either great music or not great music. You know, good music is good music. And for me, at least from my perspective, and I think it's true for most of my audience as well, that they react more to the music itself than I, I, I want Metcalf to push back against that a little bit. It seems to me there was a Jacqueline Dupre before there was necessarily the composition, compositional ticket-selling equivalent uh, of that. And you could probably come up with better examples. That was my the dumb one I thought of. <laughs> well... Uh, that's that's also probably true, but I I was gonna I was gonna back up a little bit and say um, you know this this actually occurred to me uh, recently because I was uh, as I think you were Colin I was I was uh, sitting in the audience at the performance by the Jack 
quartet, a uh, New York City-based brilliant quartet that, that plays exclusively new music, and they were up uh, in Hartford as part of our Garmony series last month, and they played the one and only string quartet written by Ruth Crawford Seeger, written in, uh, I think, 1931 or early 30s. Of course, today, Ruth Crawford Seeger, to the extent that she's known by the general public, is known as Pete's stepmother, uh, not necessarily as a as a creative artist in her own right. But I, I was thinking, you know, I've probably heard that piece once uh, before live in a lifetime of concert going many years ago. And I was just thinking, again, what a, what a remarkable, incredible original piece this is. And and why isn't this better known? And why isn't Ruth better known? Didn't she and, have kind of an ambivalent relationship with composing? Did she sort of stop? Do I have that right or wrong? I, don't know, I thought I read up after after that concert because it was such a remarkable piece. Well, she had a, a rocky period. You might you might be thinking of Amy Beach, who stopped for many years mm. at the behest of her physician husband. But 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 I think we can't entirely separate. I mean, much as it would be nice to be able to to think of these pieces as you know sort of gender neutral, I I, I don't think it's uh, entirely possible to do that, at least. I think I will share. I think the one thing that I can think of is not so much the piece itself, but, you know, as you know, for composers to get their pieces performed, there are quite a bit of networking. You know, who do you know? Who right. are you getting your pieces um, supported or heard? So there is that human element. And then I think it's the, actually that human element that perhaps is getting in the way in the sense that perhaps as females were less aggressive, were less, you know, pushy or well, actually, whatever it is. We have, a, therefore, we, we have a female composer right here in the studio, pushy <laughs> or otherwise. I haven't been able to figure out how pushy Paula Mathewson is. But what about that networking aspect of it? How true does that ring for you right now, Paula? Well, it is definitely, there's a very strong social component, in part because the new music world is sort of closely knit and it's it's small in a way. For myself personally, though, a lot of the musicians that I write for are ones that um, I have this very collaborative relationship with. And it is a very, very sort of um, close kind of knit community. And that doesn't necessarily, I don't think when we get together and we work on it on a, a particular project, we think, oh, this is networking. You know, it's more that there's that sort of singular kind of interest in trying something different and then having the mutual commitment to see it brought to fruition. Uh, Steve, I'm also wondering, what, is there a difference between, I mean, there's obviously a difference between the kinds of smaller new music ensembles that you bring in through the Garmony series or that, that, that anybody looks at and what Carolyn's trying to do. You can't roll the dice as much with a symphony orchestra, right? If you have something that doesn't click, that doesn't work for people, there's like a lot of people's mortgages and stuff are on the line. Whereas, I mean, a lot of people's, you know, futures and, and financial situations are on the line. I'm assuming... You know, the Jack Quartet, you know, can they're a little bit more at liberty to do whatever the hell they want to do. At the risk of alienating my friend yeah. Carolyn Kwan, I'm going to say that the, the, the chamber music world, the small ensemble world, <laughs> has become, I think, much more nimble and much more flexible in some ways over the last 10 or 15 years than the orchestral world. I'm sorry, Carolyn. I, I, Actually, you know, I, Steve, I agree with you in the <laughs> sense that, you know, I mean, th- and that's one of the things I'm trying to explore for the Harper Symphony, that we need a different series, a different venue, you know, different opportunity um, to actually be more experimental. And that very much, as you know, fits with um, what I'm interested in. Just have to find a venue for right. it. 
So I, if you do, you'll go ahead, Steve. Well, yeah. no, I'm just going to finish the, the idea that was started here with the whole networking question because it's certainly true that music works a different way than, for example, literature. I mean, you know, Meg Wolitzer can be a young, unknown writer and can put out a novel and suddenly everybody's reading it and it's on Amazon and it and it takes off and then she's a star and then her, her career is made. I think... I think with music, it's much more complicated. You you do have to get people to play it. You do have to get people to program it. You you have to promote it. And even if you get a piece played by a, a relatively major ensemble, doesn't mean that your future is assured the way it might mean if you write a best-selling novel. So it's just a harder gig, uh, Paula, and, and I'm very sorry. But uh, you know, <laughs> Paula's future is, is assured, as it turns out. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> Carolyn, uh, before we lose you, I mean, let me just sort of ask the question again. Is this something you want to do affirmatively? In other words, I mean, let's say you had uh, the world and the time to do this and you had maybe the the right per- different kind of venue, different t- kind of scale. Is affirmatively going out and mining the work of, of women composers, women composers from uh, the hundred, hundreds of years ago, but also women's, uh, women composers from the Paula Mathewson generation. Is that something that really appeals to you as a goal? Very much so, definitely. It's definitely something. I'm always um, wanting people to send me materials. You know, I'm curious what's out there. And, and of course, the more I know, the more I can try to champion. And I do champion some um, quite a few women composers. Um, when it comes to the main masterwork series of Harper Symphony, you know, I have a lot of other aspects of being a music director I have to consider. So it's really you know, trying to balance everything. But for example, I'll share a story. So our last Masterwork series, we're doing Copeland Fanfare for the Common Men. And the, originally, the idea was to have uh, a commission of a female composer um, writing a piece called Fanfare for Hartford Women. Uh, as we started to talk about this, um, I was actually persuaded that it shouldn't be only female, that we should actually open it to all composers, which I thought was kind of interesting that I, I, I got turned around. Although, Carolyn, didn't, didn't Joan Tower already do this? Didn't she write a piece called Fanfare for the Remarkable uh, un- Woman or un- something? Un- uncommon oh, Women. Oh, the Uncommon yeah. Women, sorry. Oh, that's yeah, right. but you know, as you know, part of my interest is to support right. um, living composers. So I wanted to, I mean, also, you know, as Harper Symphony, we're trying to, you know, build relationships with composers. So we're trying to figure out, you know, who else is out there. Right. But well, I speaking of that, can I just jump in? Because I'm going to yeah, be killed by ahead. any number of people if I don't mention that there is this very uh, long-standing and remarkable institution in town called the Women Composers Festival of Hartford, which has been going now for 14 years. But it is a nationally known forum for for women composers. And I think, Paula, you've you've had a piece on it or may have a piece yeah. on it. Possibly. No. I'm she's, not sure. she's, she's nodding enthusiastically. But, um, well, I, I'm actually nodding uh, enthusiastically because the composer this year's um, that will be featured, one of them is Lisa Coons, and she's excellent, and that will is guaranteed to be a very exciting yeah. she's and com- thrilling concert. She's composer in residence, right? Uh, right. And, and she had been in residence at the Hart School a few years earlier, and she is a remarkable artist and person. So, anyway, I... I, I have to mention that uh, and festival. So, and so you have. And mm-hmm. we're going to grab a break here. We want to say thanks to Carolyn Kwan. Uh, absolutely go to the Hartford Symphony. Be a subscriber to the Hartford Symphony. Support everything that Carolyn Kwan does. She is a treasure. We are so lucky to have her. Talking about women in music. I mean, women conductors is like a whole other conversation. And she'll come back for that. Uh, we'll, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about sort of, we're going to get a little bit out of the orchestras and the chamber ensembles and into the, some of the more popular forms of music.
I've been told that Mrs. Nickelback wrote all three of the songs on their greatest hits album. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Nia Tyler. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Hildegard of Bingen. For show pages, articles, and audio of the Faith Middleton Show staff singing I Am Woman, Hear Me Schmooze, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. Yes, uh, I just want to say how excited I am to have Lydia Brown producing uh, one of our shows, uh, which uh, she has never done since the days long ago when she was an intern. She's, of course, uh, emerged as a huge star uh, since then. And she also has like a pretty formidable background in the, in the, in the area that we're working in right now, uh, women in composition. But I don't have time to go into all that. Uh, we also are making fun of her with a Nickelback joke. We want to add to this conversation. We still have uh, Paula Mathewson and Steve Metcalf in studio with me. We want to add to this conversation uh, Jenny Gearing because I want to talk a little bit about um, – a, sort of sh- what we might call show music. Um, we don't want to say uh, Broadway music anymore, but uh, show music and, and sort of pop music, too, because, in fact, this – to me, if you want to know something that kind of sums up this whole question of how long it took for women to emerge and be accepted as songwriters even in the pop world, consider the fact that My Boyfriend's Back, perhaps the ultimate girl group a song by the Angels, was written by three men. Um, <laughs> so, um, so this is – you know, it's still – kind of an emerging process. Maybe it's over. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, Jenny Gearing is joining us. Um, her uh, work includes, her musical theater work includes uh, Elizabeth Rex, uh, um, Princess Caribou, The Mistress Cycle. I'm very excited that she has in development a Saint X, which is based on the life of uh, Antoine Saint-Exupéry. I will be playing the lead role at the <laughs> Albuquerque Light Opera later this year. No, not really. Maybe, Steve, you were the one who kind of pushed us in this direction, so I'm going to have you kind of get the ball rolling. And and let's look at show music for a second. I mean, we know for the first 80 years or so, there's Carolyn Lee and there's Dorothy Fields, who's a lyric. I mean, there's not a whole lot to hang your hat on, even there in what should be a pretty democratic world. Well, it's true. And and uh, so the, so the big arc, at least as I look at it, um, is that for the first roughly sixty years or so of the of the twentieth century, uh, and of course the what we call the Great American Songbook is by and large theater music, show music, shows us very very few women. Like you say, Dorothy Fields. Uh, a little bit later, Betty Comden appears. Carolyn Lay is is in there. Interestingly enough, all three of those women are lyricists, mm-hmm. not not melodists. Uh, you know, and then there's a couple of sort of one off. Figures like Kay Swift, who wrote "Can't We Be Friends" and "Shine on, Har- Shine on Harvest Moon," too, right? Did she oh write yeah, that? oh yeah, she did. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, actually, not that tune. I think she did. I'll uh, bet you a dollar. Well, okay, yeah. well, a dollar is all I'll bet. All right. But and and then uh, you know, in the in the late fifties, basically in the post rock and roll era, th- there's suddenly this explosion. And I think in in hindsight, we do have to credit Carol King with being the figure who sort of. Uh, Smashes the glass ceiling initially, but then, but then Joni and Laura Nero and countless others go through. So anyway, it's a it's a it's a pretty strangely bifurcated century, at least as uh, as we look at it from a distance. And I don't know if Jenny will agree with that or not. Well, yeah, but. and and Jenny, maybe I mean obviously you feel we're at a very different moment here in 2014, but no doubt you feel the weight uh, of the history. And, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I do. And I have to say that it is not a democratic world at all. From, and I'm only speaking from my experience, but 
I think that women's voices, and I write for the theater exclusively. I write uh, incidental music. I just came back from D.C. where I scored The Tempest. I just got home last night. And um, I've got commissions from for new musicals from two major regional theaters. And I, in my experience, there are like, you know, a handful of women who are getting these opportunities. And um, I, I'm not really sure how to uh, find equality in that. Do you have any explanation for it? I mean, even this, I mean, even Smash, which obviously is an incredibly uh, well-documented look at the American theater, uh, American musical theater. I'm talking about the idiotic TV show. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, the songwriting crew team, it was Deborah Messing was the lyricist. I mean, there's yeah. almost still this kind of ingrained idea that the woman doesn't sit at the piano. Where, where does that, do you have a thought about where that comes from? I think that for theater, it was very much an old boys club for a long time. And I think that even though people will deny it up and down, it's still very much the case. I mean, it, it is so endemic in the world of theater that a bunch of women have gotten together to uh, Marcia Norman, who's a playwright, uh, sort of spearheaded this thing called the Lily Awards to shine light on women in theater uh, at all stages of their development because we are completely underrepresented from soup to nuts uh, in in the you know, in the, in the college programs and also in the awards during the year and actually in programming, not programming, but, you know, theater seasons. Well, we, that's the way, that's the equivalent in the theater, the, what, what they program for plays and musicals. So we're, I think people are trying to figure out why, but I, I, it's definitely, I feel like for me, every, it's an uphill battle. Every career step is a hard one rung on a ladder. Is that true? Or did you have something you want? Well, to say? I want yeah. to ask yeah. Jenny, if you don't mind, Jenny, yeah. can I can I ask you the same question that I asked Carolyn Kwan of the Hartford Symphony? Do you think? Okay. I mean, you know, it's 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 almost a cliche to think of the sort of cigar chomping old boy network of producers and and theater owners and that kind of thing. But w- what about audiences themselves? Do you, do you think audiences themselves, in some respects, are are less uh, embracing of of new musicals or new theater uh, works? by women somehow, or or is that not your experience? Um, that's not my experience. I, I really, but again, I think that the world is so insular and small that breaking in at all is hard, mm. and I think that there is a gender barrier. And I don't speak for everyone across the board, obviously. You know, I, there are theaters that are doing yeoman's work to try to bring equality to the situation but when you look at what gets and especially for i've thought about this a lot i i mean there really are like a handful of women who are having careers writing music Mm. and i think that i mean i've talked a little bit about the women at the at the lily awards and they believe uh because they're really they're deeply in the trenches of this exact problem and they sort of believe it begins early in the career that there aren't if you don't if you don't highlight women early in their career then they stop so it goes back to finding women who are you know in their 20s right out of school and really fostering them so that they are still writing by the time they're in their 40s like me I want to ask uh, Paula a question about this, which is, um, I mean, another way to look at this is to not be any particular kind of composer or songwriter, but to be a composer or songwriter slash musician. So let's go back to the example of Amanda Palmer, who, let's face it, owes everything to you. Uh, No, I'm kidding. But but she did shout you out. Okay, so Amanda Palmer, she's going to have a musical someday, right? I mean, she probably is working on a musical right now. She's, you know, primarily sort of, we would call her kind of a rock and pop, all pop performer 
camera. I don't know what you call her, but she, and she's kind of a, a big deal in her own way with her own audience. And so I, I don't know what you see among the students you teach or, or among the, the young women musicians and composers that you see coming along, but it seems like it would be a smarter idea to just establish, establish yourself somehow as a musical presence not specific to a genre, as opposed to trying to work this incredibly reticulated network that, that, that Jenny's talking about. Well, I think that's part of this. Well, first of all, I'm completely flattered to be mentioned in this capacity at all. <laughs> um, but I think there's a matter in which um, this is part of this uh, very interesting sort of evolutionary kind of process that seems to be taking place where previously there was so much pressure to kind of define yourself along a particular style and really proclaim it and compose really in this this one particular kind of path and declare yourself a composer with a capital C. But increasingly, people are embracing listening to multiple types of music, as well as composing and writing in multiple domains. And that actually ends up being very exciting, because it does mean that you have these multifaceted ways of working and also collaborating with people. And one door tends to open up a lot of other doors. And if you can sort of reach across to another different network, then you kind of have this phenomenon phenomenon of the strength of weak ties, where you really actually can start really um, meeting people you wouldn't otherwise and open uh, possibilities for those around you as well. Can I address that for a second? Yeah. Um, because what I see from somebody who's spent a lifetime, I mean, the only thing I ever wanted to do was write for the theater. And um, what I see, and there's a, sort of like a surge of people who are outside the musical theater world coming in and writing for the theater world, and that includes people like Sarah Bareilles, Regina Spector, maybe Amanda Palmer, and that's a whole different ball of wax that Cindy, I think Cindy is... Um, Cindy Lauper. Cindy uh, Lauper. Cindy Lauper. I'm being informed that Tori Amos did a musical in she England did, called The Late Princess. London, I yep. never want to see that musical, but it has nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. Anyway, continue. <laughs> right. But I think that's a whole... Like, those people, those women have established themselves as singer-songwriters and have established themselves as brands. And writing for the theater is not necessarily an afterthought, but they're already established. They already have a lot of name recognition. And that's really important in the theater where a lot, there's so much money on the line to bring something into Broadway that, of course, if you, you say, you know, Regina Spector is at the helm of this, you have a built-in ticket base. Mm-hmm. Would, yeah, so, and, and that does, Steve, that does speak to the fact that really the genre that did democratize. I would, by the way, say if we had uh, some jazz people here, they'd be saying a lot of the same things that Paula and Jenny are saying about jazz. I think jazz is still, you know, I mean, for all, every Jane Ira Bloom, there's just... Uh, or a million other, there are a lot of guys. An argument can be made that sort of rock, pop, rock and roll, whatever we want to call it, in the way that you were talking about earlier, was the genre that did democratize and stayed democratized. I don't know, do you, do you want to push that argument harder? Well, yeah, especially in light of what Jenny just said. I mean, it's true that popular music, uh, as Gunther Schuller and others have pointed out, you know, in the 30s and 40s was, to a large extent, show music. And and vice versa. And now, by contrast, you know, you have uh, a very uh, sort of fragmented world in which, in which uh, you know, for every, I don't know, Jason Robert Brown uh, or Sondheim, you know, you, you, now have, you now have people coming in from the, as she says, the, the, the rock and singer-songwriter world. I mean, now Sting has arrived and, and before that U2 and, you know, Lauper and whatever. My point is that that I think the economics of it have gotten very complicated, and and you know it. It, for example, I I was shocked and saddened when uh, 
when the bridges of Madison County last year closed so suddenly because I thought this was really interesting music. This was music that was kind of taking the language of Broadway music to a new place. And, you know, maybe the story wasn't the greatest, but, you know, it just seemed it just seemed somehow wrong that this show would would not last longer because the music itself was so interesting. And I I assume that's just a matter of economics more than anything else. Well, if you want to know the definition of unfairness, it's that Sting has a musical on Broadway and Jenny Gearing doesn't. Sting's musical is in trouble, and he's going into the right, show exactly, for to try to save it. Ticket sales are so bad. Right. So, um, so even that ploy doesn't always work. <laughs> well, I mean, that's sort of. I mean, that's a whole other. That's a whole other conversation. I think about you know, if you if you spend your life writing. I have two thoughts. If you spend your life writing songs, if you're a songwriter, it's very, very different from writing a, a score to a musical. Right. Songs function differently, and sometimes they can bump up, bump up against each other, and it can be successful. But it, it, behind every song, singer-songwriter who is writing a musical, there is a team of musical dramatists who are helping to make that thing work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we're going to have to stop here. This has been a great conversation. So grateful to have Jen, uh, Jenny Gearing and Paula Mathewson. I will be starring in uh, Son X very soon. Uh, Jenny, my glossy, is uh, uh, being sent in PDF form right now. Uh, Paula Mathewson, composer and assistant professor of music at Wesleyan University. Carolyn Kwan, you know. Steve Metcalf, you know even better, but read Metcalf on Music on WNPR.org. It drops on Thursdays. Because maybe you're gonna be the one that saves me. Oh, no, 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 no. That, that should never become anything that anybody hears, ever. That's fair.